My guest today is Professor Stephanie Schulke, who is Professor of Pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego. Her research project is focused on the molecular characterization of cystinosis, a metabolic hereditary disease, and gene therapy. Welcome, Stephanie. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, um, uh, obviously, I don't know much about uh, cystinosis. I, I gather it's a, it's a rare disease. Incidence rates uh, in the range of one to one hundred thousand, or That's something correct. of those lines. Uh, so really rare uh, disease. Uh, it is a genetic uh, disorder. Uh, and so uh, you have to have fathers and mothers uh, gene disorders sort of come together uh, so that both of your that particular gene is, is has a problem for the disease to appear. Um, so you say here you have a number of papers in this area. I know that you have been doing research in this area for a long time. Cystinosis is an autosomal recessive metabolic disease that belongs to the family of lysosomal storage disorders. Um, and so the little I understand about this is that there, there are materials inside the cells that uh, for whatever reason, because of the gene disorder, the cells cannot get rid of. So you have an accumulation problem in the cells, right? So, so what exactly is uh, cystinosis? Yeah, so actually, yes, I have been involved in cystinosis for a very long time. I did actually my PhD in cystinosis, and uh, we actually identify the gene involved into this disease. And so the gene called CTNS encode a lysosomal transmembrane transporter of cysteine. So this allows the cysteine, the amino acid cysteine, to exit the lysosome. So the lysosome is um, kind of a recycled bin of the cells, and you know this is where the protein are um, uh, enter the, 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 the lysosome, and they have they are cut in many amino acids. And the uh, cysteine has to exit the lysosome to be reused by the cells. Um, but and cystinosine, the transporter of cysteine, is uh, missing or non-functional in the patient with cystinosis. The issue yeah, is sorry. that. Mm -hmm, sorry. sorry, sorry to interrupt, um, Stephanie. So let me see if I can understand this. So the lysosome is inside the cell. Yeah. And cystine is is a is a protein. It's an amino acid, so it's like a one of a breakdown from the protein. So the protein okay. contains cysteine. And so when the protein enters the lysosome to be recycled, it's break down by, you know, several amino acids. Actually, a cysteine is two cysteine together and yeah. um, it requires a transporter to be able to exit the lysosome. So the cell is, if I understand this, you know, purely from a mechanical perspective, the lysosome is sort of a manufacturer of cysteine. And in a in a normal cell, there is a transport mechanism. It can mm -hmm. take that out and yeah. into the bloodstream. So, so I have two questions. Um, why do we need? Why, why does the body need uh, cysteine? What what is the what is the function? So cysteine is part of a protein. So every protein in our body requires cysteine. 
So um, it's like arginine or any over amino acid. So uh, it's required for the protein. Actually, cysteine is is a is a two cysteine together, and when it's uh, exit the lysosome, when it's uh, in going to the cytoplasm, it's uh, break down into two cysteine, and it's re reused by the cells to make proteins. So it's almost like a starting material. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's part of a you know it's like a building block. You know that you need to make a house or something, um, so, but the the issue is that CTNS is expressed in every single tissue in our body. So when uh, in the patient who have a mutation in in CTNS, so who have cystinosis, actually accumulate cysteine in all the organs. Hmm. So the lysosome become dysfunctional. So the cells becomes this dysfunctional and uh, start to create the cysteine crystals in the lysosome that are characteristic of this building of cysteine uh, storage. And eventually the cells die. So little by little, progressively, the, the, all the organs in the body fell in the patient with cystinosis. And so this start by uh, the kidney. So we are the first organ to be affected for cystinosis. It's not fully understand, understood why we, we, you know, it's the first organ, but it's so the, uh, the, this start in infancy with a dysfunctional kidney and eventually the patient um, have instead renal failure and require kidney transplantation. But this patient also accumulates cysteine crystals in the cornea, which leads to photophobia and eventually blindness. Um, they also have endocrine dysfunction, myopathy, so muscle weakness that also lead to their death. Um, uh, they have neurological defect, uh, etc. You know, you name it. It's like uh, this patient, unfortunately, have very profound um, organ defect and poor quality of life. Yeah, so it's a it's a really bad disease in, in many ways. Um, but going back to the mechanics of this, so in a normal cell, there is a transport mechanism. We call this here proton-driven cysteine transporter. Mm -hmm. So in a normal cell, uh, it can basically take it out of the lysosome and put that into the bloodstream. When you have this problem, you don't have that transporter. So essentially, things are getting accumulated, right? In the lysosome, yeah. it just sits there. Yeah. yeah, and it doesn't take it in the bloodstream. It takes it to the, from the lysosome to the cytoplasm, where it's reused for the cell homeostasis. Um, and yes, in because the, cystine, the transporter is missing, then, you know, the, the cysteine is, is stuck within the lysosome and accumulate. Yeah, I can't even imagine what this situation. I mean, I, I know that there are multiple types of uh, cystinosis. There's early onset, um, late onset, and uh, like just ocular uh, cystinosis. Uh, but but if it is accumulating in the cells, that is not a sustainable process, is it? I mean, what happens? They, they get it crystallizes, and uh, yes. what, what goes on? Yeah. Yeah. So the system that accumulate crystallizes. So that's why the all the patients have this very characteristic accumulation of of system crystals, which actually help for the diagnosis. Uh, because um, if they are very suspicion of of cystinosis, they usually try to see, you know, have um, cystine crystals, for example, in the cornea, and see if um, if they have crystals, then we can have a diagnosis of cystinosis. 
Yeah, so the, the crystallization of this is a, a, so sort of a systemic problem. It's happening everywhere. Yeah. And so there could be a lot of different organs uh, ultimately involved. Uh, but there's a specific variety that affects the eye more than the, the other organs. So actually it affects the kidney more than the other organs. Um, but again, we, it's not completely understood why, um, you know, the, the kidney are the first affected. And all the patients require kidney transplantation. Um, then the second uh, uh, tissue to be affected is indeed the, uh, the eye uh, with uh, um, abundant accumulation of crystals in within the cornea. So, um, so I know that you know the uh, uric acid, for instance, crystallizes and it, it gives people gout. Uh, but this is very different from that, right? This is a systemic, every cell is involved in this process, right? Yeah, you know, it's very different. Actually, some people, mis you know, uh, mistake this, uh, you know, cystinosis uh, with your, uh, uh, your but it's not, it's not the same thing at all. And the accumulation of crystals is, is you know, in inside the cells and which make it very, um, which make it very, um, a critical disease because uh, with this accumulation, the cell die and eventually the organ. So, so a lot of your focus has been gene therapy. So essentially that transporter is missing. Uh, the ideal situation would be to replace a transporter on every cell. It's easier said than done, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how do you go about doing that. I, I wouldn't have known either. I mean, actually, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to do a gene therapy uh, very early on and for my PhD already, which, you know, was too early to do a PhD on on uh, gene therapy. But uh, I started to work on cystinosis and I um, I was and I thought it would be very nice to go from the gene to gene therapy. So we um, I started to work on cystinosis with this in mind. But when we start, we found the gene, we first realized it was expressed in every single tissue. We second realized that uh, it was a non-secreted protein with a transporter. Um, that was the worst uh, disease model to do gene therapy on. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't have chosen chosen this, this, this is at all <laughs> I would have to go back um, but actually I'm glad I did because um, after um, when I became a faculty and I knew the tools for um, gene therapy I you know I was already involved a lot with the family and the community with cystinosis and and it was now a personal fight that I really wanted to find a better treatment for these patients um, so, of course, how do you bring a gene everywhere, especially when it's not secreted? So you really have to, to target the most cells possible. Um, so that's why I turned to the ex vivo gene therapy in contrast to in vivo gene therapy. The in vivo gene therapy is that when you um, inject into the body, uh, a viral vector containing the uh, missing gene. So, and most of the time you use adeno-associated virus. The issue with in vivo gene therapy is that um, the, you are very um, constrained with a dose and it's impossible to target all the tissue with in vivo gene therapy. So, um, so that wouldn't be okay for this kind of disease where you have to really bring the healthy protein in most of the tissues. So, I chose to then to go to the exogene therapy, meaning that we are using the stem cells to 
uh, that we genetically gene correct or gene modify ex vivo before we put them back into the body. Yeah. And actually, there were two, um, you know, the bone marrow stem cells that we have in our, um, all of us in our bone marrow, have really the ability to be able to target every single tissue in our body if we have any kind of injury. So we're thinking, you know, maybe because in cystinosis patients, all the tissue are, are damaged. So we might, the, the cells might be able to uh, engraft into this tissue. And so I, we have two main bone marrow stem cells in our um, bone marrow, the mesenchymal stem cells that make, you know, tissue cells and the hematopoietic stem cells that give rise to blood cells. So I really believe that the mesenchymal stem cells would be the one that would really make the difference because we want to target tissue cells. Um, and I use the hematopoietic stem cells as a negative control. Um, but against all odds, um, I realized that so the mesenchymal stem cells had only um, a transient beneficial effect because now we know that they cannot engraft long term in tissues. But unexpectedly, the hematopoietic stem cells had a very uh, dramatic impact on the on the disease. So first, we found a lot of uh, um, hematopoietic stem cells derived cells that engraft into all the organs. And we realized that it led to a dramatic decrease of the cysteine content in all these organs and the long term preservation of these tissues of the kidney, the thyroid, the eye, etc. So that was a very um, um, amazing and unexpected um, research. Um, and again, because, you know, the, 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 so the protein is non uh, secreted. So what we realized there um, was um, that actually the hematopoietic stem cells, what they become is that they become, because they give rise to a lot of hematopoietic cells or blood cells, but the monocyte in the blood cells have the ability to become macrophage into the organs or macroglia into the brain. And we realize that the macrophages, the because they become resident macrophage, so they engraft long term into the tissues, they have the ability to transfer the lysosome via tunneling nanotubes. So the tunneling nanotubes are this long tubular protrusion that can make a bridge between cells, so connection, and deliver the lysosome carrying the cystinosine protein in this case. So that was a kind of a, um, a novel mechanism of, of action to explain how hematopoietic stem cells could rescue disease like cystinosis. And so this is what's uh, the innovation of, of my lab. So I don't, I'm going to understand it, uh, Stephanie. So, so in some sense, you need some sort of a messenger to, to remedy the issue in almost every every cell in the body mm -hmm. and stem cells some type of stem cells appear to do that in this case um, but is it a sort of a platform technology uh, in the sense that if there's a systemic genetic disorder could you use the same idea for others for other, other sure. diseases you are completely right. So now um, what happened is um, because we use hematopoietic stem cells in disease uh, that was not thought 
to be able to work, we were able to make a intellectual property on, on that um, um, on that kind of disease. And so we have, so it was like a lysosomal disease due to a transmembrane lysosomal protein. And so we were able to uh, show that this works also in uh, another uh, lysosomal disease called Danone disease with my collaborator, uh, uh, Eric Adler. Um, he works on this disease for many years. He's a cardiologist. And actually, the patient with Danone require a, a heart transplant. Hmm. They also have uh, eye defect and neurological defect. Um, and the protein involved is a lump 2B protein, which is also a transmembrane lysosomal protein. And so when he saw me um, one day, you know, presenting at UCSD, he's also from UCSD, he said, hey, wait a second, why don't we try on, you know, on Danone? And sure enough, so we tried and we were able to rescue the disease. Um, and we did the same thing than for cystinosis. So we developed the ex vivo uh, gene therapy approach. And we are also now starting the uh, safety study for um, one day starting a clinical trial for, for Danone. Yeah, I, I would imagine the mechanics of this is quite um, quite complicated and yeah. potentially dangerous. Yeah. But uh, it, it's sort of um, swapping out uh, existing bone marrow uh, in some way with the with replacement uh, with, with the genetic modification, right? Is that the yeah? And, and that's a, an important point. So uh, you know, if with this kind of, of of results, you would think, oh, okay, so why don't we do a bone marrow transplant? Actually, a bone marrow transplant, when you take stem cells from a donor, a foreign donor, there are high risk of mortality and morbidity um, associated with that, more than 20% uh, of risk um, because of this graft versus host disease. You know, you are putting cells that are not yours, so uh, oftentimes they, you know, will react against your body and you can die from that. Actually, one patient who was 16 years old has been transplanted with allotransplant. So, you know, using a foreign hematopoietic stem cells in Belgium based on our work. And unfortunately, uh, the patient died from uh, these uh, processes. Um, they still saw, you know, benefits from the um, transplanted hematopoietic stem cells for cystinosis disease, but, you know, um, the, the patient died from graft-versus-sous disease. So it is very important to understand that you know, you you cannot do bone marrow transplant in any patient. It's very risky. So what we have what we have to do, and what is much safer to do, is to actually take the patient own bone marrow stem cells and hematopoietic stem cells, and to gene modify them or gene correct them ex vivo, and then we can transplant them back by doing a bone marrow transplant. So this yeah. requires a short-term myeloablation, so using uh, uh, so short-term chemotherapy to remove the patient's own bone marrow stem cells, so this makes space into their bone marrow. And then when we infuse the gene-modified hematopoietic stem cells, they will go to the bone marrow by themselves, reside there, multiply there, and for the rest of the life of a patient. So now we have a reservoir of healthy cells for the rest of the life of a patient, and as we've shown is that when it's required because of tissue damage, they will um, travel to the tissue and graft and provide the healthy protein to the disease cells. So that's kind of a, 
a really self-regulated uh, one-time treatment. Mm. That is very powerful, actually. So there's no rejection risk if you do and that. And there is no rejection yeah. risk, except if for any reason the uh, the patient or the, can, or the body can react against the new protein that you are adding. So mm. there are also safety studies that you always have to, to verify, but it's more rare. Uh, but you can you always have to verify that. But you know, in the case of cystinosis, for instance, you know there is no no issue on um, immune reaction against the cystinosis protein for patients who have who don't have it. But there is no risk of rejection yes. from the from the stem cells um, themselves. Yeah. So if I understand this correctly, Stephanie, so you take a part of the bone marrow of the patient mm-hmm. and you modify it. Uh, mm-hmm. with a with a with a vector mm-hmm. and you don't take all of it right you take some bits of it and then you grow it do you grow yeah. so cells? so yeah. what we do it exactly is that we mobilize the hematopoietic stem cells so we call that the cd34 hematopoietic stem cells it's the hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells so we use the um so we first mobilize them in the bloodstream and we do what we call an apheresis. So it's like, it's a machine that will take the white blood cells and send back the red blood cells into your blood. So that's what you can take much more. And from this apheresis bag, we isolate the CD34 hematopoietic stem cells. So yeah. this has to be done in what we call a good manufacturing practice manu- uh, facility. And so um, this for cystinosis, it was done at the GMP facility at UCLA, directed by Donald Cohen. Um, and uh, this is where the gene modification of the cells were done before um, and after characterized, make sure they are safe to transplant, and then they were able to be transplanted and infused, reinfused into the patient. Reinfused into the patient. So, so the, the chemotherapy aspect of this is essentially removing what is there by chemotherapy? Yes, it's to remove your own bone marrow stem cells. Yeah. So like that, were one that have not been gene corrected, they will be removed. It has to be, otherwise the, the new stem cells are not engrafting into the bone marrow. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> a big, big process. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. in the middle, the patient is at risk uh, from almost the immune system, I would imagine, is sleeping. Yeah, I mean, we completely replace. So, I mean, yeah. so the risk after, you know, um, after this kind of um, bone marrow tra- transplant, the patient has to stay at least three weeks, three to four weeks in the hospital because um, they, there is the risk that is uh, exists is that they are um, more prone to get infection and do not have their, their immune cells to fight it. So they have to be in a secure place, you know, in, a, in the hospital. Uh, to where, you know, but bone marrow transplant is, is happening ev- every day, you know, for many disorders, um, like, you know, cancer, etc. So, you know, people are used to doing that in, in, as, as a very safe environment. Yeah. I mean, there are no options, it sounds to me. I know there's a chemical agent that is more symptomatic, isn't it? I mean, it's not a, it's not a cure. Uh, so... Why, the, the, what are you doing? The chemotherapy? Yeah, the, the, what is it called? Uh, there, there's a, 
there is a medicine that's used for the disease, right? A chemical agent. Oh, oh, oh sorry. Yeah, yeah. So the so the, the the drug that currently exists for cystinosis is called cysteamine, and it's a it's a chemical that enters the lysosome and is able to break down the cysteine, and so after the cysteine is able to to exit the lysosome. Um, but it's just delay the, the progression of a disease. So it's very important because before the patients were dying very early uh, from the disease, now they can live until young adult. Um, but still, you know, um, they still develop uh, the complication. Uh, they still have a poor quality of life. But um, with this drug, it, they, re they are really able to live longer. Um, but clearly it's it's uh, it's a need of better treatment and you know that's the reality for most of a genetic disorder very often they lead to profound tissue damage and poor quality of life and most of a, of a treatment um, cannot be addressed by a regular medication and this is when we you know why i think you know gene therapy is really the future of medicine for this kind of disorder um, and we see that more and more now because um, before it was considered science fiction. Now we have more and more um, FDA approved uh, gene therapy product for genetic disorder. And we see a, a, a very dramatic impact of, of this uh, gene therapy uh, product compared to, to regular treatment. Yeah, we don't know anything about this, Stephanie. So I was wondering if it is purely gen genetic disorder, why are we seeing a late onset of the disease? Um, shouldn't everything be early? No, that's a very good question. So um, there are different kind of, kind of mutation in the, uh, in the case of cystinosis that we can find in the cystinosis gene. And we have done, uh, so during my PhD, we have done uh, some, um, uh, some functional assays that determine the impact of a mutation in the protein. And what we've shown is that in the infantile form of a disease, most of the mutation lead to the non-functional protein, you know, where there is no transport of cysteine at all. Uh, in the uh, later form of a disease, we can measure some residual transport of cysteine. And so that's why the uh, phenotype is, uh, is less, um, less important. Yeah, so... So, so I get the mutations that we're seeing. I, I don't remember the the name of the CNT something. What what was the CTNS? Which one? The gene CTNS. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so, so I guess there is a gradation there in terms of. So it's not a pure case, is it? I mean, so you could have some small amounts of transportation going on, yes. uh, mm -hmm. even though. Yeah. So, so uh, for example, in the juvenile form, we have uh, seen uh, some 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 residual transport. There is also an ocular form of cystinosis that is found in adult, and in that case, we found a much higher uh, level of transport of cystine. So, you know, it depends on how, how much cystine can still be transported, and that determines the phenotype. And so if I understand this correctly, Stephanie, so the, this is sort of a starting material for a lot of protein production. If it is not getting there, then a variety of other issues are going to happen to the body, right? For cystinosis? Yeah. Yes. I mean, that's why we have, that's why the patient have uh, kidney failure, blindness, uh, muscle weakness, 
endocrine dysfunction. So yeah, I mean, there, there is a lot of um, defect in each organs that leads to the organ failure. Yeah, I know that you have another paper here, um, which is sort of on the same same lines of so Frederick's ataxia. Mm -hmm. So what is that? Uh, it is also an autosomal recessive neuro neurodegenerative disease. So what, what ha what's happening there? So the why we started to work on Frederick ataxia. So first of all, I was not at all familiar. I mean, I was familiar. I heard about this disease because uh, when I was in PhD, um, I was working with someone, a colleague, who had a, a son with Frelicatexia, so that's why that's the first one that came to my mind when we wanted to work on mitochondrial disease. So why I got interested in mitochondrial disease is because the tunneling nanotube that can transport the lysosome can also transport mitochondria. So I was thinking if the, we can make a difference in lysosomal um, transporter, you know, so like because the organelles can be transported or transferred, Maybe we can do the same in mitochondrial disease. And so again, this was novel and um, in the field of gene therapy for mitochondrial disease. And I was like, okay, let, let's try to make um, a proof of concept. So again, because I knew uh, I, I mean, my colleague had a, a, a son with his disease, and this is also a terrible disease where um, the uh, patients um, are born, you know, normal, and suddenly they start to have locomotor deficiency, and they get this diagnosis of radicataxia, and, so, and it's a really a death sentence, where the patient will progressively lose uh, his locomotor ability, will end up in a wheelchair, and for years, and um, end up dying from cardiac um, dysfunction. So it's very terrible, and despite of the fact that um, many people work on many groups, many um, investigators work on this disease for many years, and um, there is no treatment that can really stop the disease. Um, so I, I, you know, instead of going after the neurons or, you know, trying because it's neurodegenerative, everybody thinks, okay, we have to fix the neurons. Yeah. Um, I was thinking maybe let's go to another approach where you know, we know because what we've learned and what others have shown is that the hematopoietic stem cells can become macroglia like cells in the brain. And these macroglia have actually, they are really important for the homeostasis of, uh, of the neurons. And they, you know, be, they are able to, to transfer a lot of things, you know, to neurons. So I was thinking maybe they can also transfer the missing protein here. So we did a proof of concept in the mice with Frelicataxia, and it was really like a traumatic impact. I mean, I always remember when I was with my postdoc and we went for the first time testing the mice with, you know, you put the mice in some um, behavioral testing, you know, some machine that can, you know, you can see how they react. And it, we could tell which one had received uh, the wild-type hematopoietic stem cells as opposed to the one that received the disease cells. It is really, black and white. I mean, you, it was really a, a huge impact. And it was really amazing moment. And so we knew it was working, but after we're like, okay, now we have to understand why. And actually the primary defect is uh, the death of neurons in the dorsal root ganglia, which I didn't even know where it was at the time. So we had to learn. 
Um, but um, yeah, after which we realized that actually, yeah, the, the hematopoietic stem cells were becoming macroglia like cells in the CNS dorsal ganglia, and they were able to, tra to transfer the frataxin protein to the neurons and to prevent the neuronal death. And so that was very important um, findings. And so we took the disease from a completely another angle. And now we have uh, received, uh, you know, a found from uh, the CERM, uh, California Institute of Regenerative Medicine and FARA, the advocacy group, to really move forward this uh, treatment to a clinical trial. So we are now at the stage of, of uh, safety studies. Um, so we are really making great progress. We are, we will have our uh, first interaction with the FDA uh, ne early next month to uh, know exactly what is required to, to get to a clinical trial. So we are very excited by this work too. Yeah, so from a layman's perspective, Stephanie, I'm, I'm thinking this is this appears to be sort of a very broad application. If I understand this correctly, you, you take some type of stem cells, you modify them, and you modify them in such a way that it has a systemic effect on the body. Uh, and there could be many diseases that that this could influence. You have another paper here in Alzheimer's disease, um, which is a little different. Uh, you say here stem and progenitor cell transportation leads to complete preservation of neurocognitive performance and partial preservation of blood-brain uh, blood barrier integrity. So, so what 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 is the what is the concept here in Alzheimer's? So again, from it's um, you know from cystinosis, a rare disease. We went to cataxia, another rare disease, but less rare than cystinosis. And we learned so much from cystinosis with a mechanism of action that we were able to apply that to cataxia. From cataxia, we learn the power of hematopoietic stem cells. And others have shown that also for metachromatic leukodystrophy, adrenal leukodystrophy, so we know, and we are in clinical trials, so we know this is translatable to human. So we were, and after on, in Alzheimer, it's like um, the, the cause of Alzheimer is still not really well understood. Um, some people say that it's because of the plaque accumulation. Some people is, say it's because of a blood-brain barrier. Some people, you know, they have, everybody has their, um, their own um, apophysis. Uh, and, but, you know, some people were uh, saying that the macroglia cells, uh, actually that their neuroinflammation macroglia cells might be involved in the pathogenesis and the uh, neurodegeneration. So we're thinking if this is true, then if we use healthy hematopoietic stem cells, maybe we can stop the progression of Alzheimer's. So that was the rationale behind this work. Um, so again, we tested that in the mice. We tested the mice into this, you know, uh, behavioral testing. And again, the results was really beyond our expectation when we could completely rescue uh, the memory function or preserve the neuro neurocognitive function of the mice with the memory, um, the uh, sense of danger, etc., was completely preserved in these mice. And what we've shown is actually that the neuroinflammation was uh, very reduced. I mean, it was non-existent. Whereas in the mice with Alzheimer, uh, there was this uh, dramatic 
uh, neuroinflammation and the macroglia cells there were so uh, inflamed and activated that they have a potential to eat the neurons, so to lead to neurodegeneration. So by using rheumatopoietic stem cell, we completely stop that. And, um, and we believe that, you know, this is really a big part of the pathogenesis. So obviously now we have two more direction on this work is like we want to develop for the familial AD a more gene therapy, exergene therapy approach like we have done for cystinosis or, or um, uh, free cataxia. But we also want to understand better, you know, how uh, the hematopoietic stem cells completely stop the progression of Alzheimer. And I think this is very important uh, for understanding the disease and finding drug targets. So, so if I understand this correctly, so microglia inflammation, if that is what's causing it, it's a little bit of a runaway process, right? So it gets inflammated and it creates more inflammation and then things go down and down the down the drain from there. And so are you saying that um, you're stopping inflammation or are you saying that you're actually replacing some of the cells? So we are replacing the macroglia by macroglia-like cells, and we are stopping, the, preventing the inflammation. Now there are some some response to keep that we still have to figure out. Do if the inflammation is already very intense, can we regress that? I mean, reduce it. I mean, there are some things we still have to understand. Uh, but in that case, by replacing the macroglia by healthy one we completely prevent the inflammation and the activation of the macroglia like cells. And we show that we stop completely the, uh, the, the, um, the progression of the disease itself. So like, like you said, there were a lot of hypotheses around the cause and progression of uh, Alzheimer's disease, but if with this technique, you're actually demonstrating improvement in neurocognitive performance, then it should be sort of pointing in this direction, right? That is sort of the cause of it. I would say that, <laughs> <laughs> but there are many people who would say it differently, you know? I was, I, you know, I, I never saw um, a disease where uh, nobody agree with each other. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that's, you know, that's what the beauty of, of this. I'm, I'm very excited by this, about this project because uh, there's so much to learn. Uh, so we are really making a, a big effort now to to uh, understand this process because, um, yeah, there is so much that is unknown um, and that I think we have a perfect model to understand it. So, so we look forward in conclusion, uh, Stephanie. So where do you think this research will go? What areas are you really excited about and uh, what do you want to do in the next five years? So I'm really excited by the, the potential of exergene therapy. As you um, as you said, you know, now we have a platform, you know, we can, I really believe this is very powerful and there are many disorders that we can rescue with it, with this um, technology. So this is what I really want to, um, to develop. But I also want to develop gene therapy in general. Um, I also have some uh, project when it's in vivo gene therapy, um, but for some, you know, very specific tissues. Um, I'm happy to see how gene therapy now is considered as part of medicine. I have um, a, a course on gene therapy that, and I remember that it, I started that six years ago and I had only one, it's for medical student and graduate student and also pharmacy student. 
and I had only one medical student. Now it's 50% uh, of, of a student are from um, a medical field. So I think now even, you know, the physician um, really consider that also part of a medicine. So for me, it's a big, um, it's a big victory. Um, also uh, now I, I just uh, recently launched the uh, gene therapy initiative at UCSD with philanthropic uh, funds. Uh, and our, the goal of that is to really help people to develop gene therapy. Uh, there are many people who work on disease and have the perfect disease model for gene therapy, but they don't know maybe how to do it or they don't have a fund to start, you know, this kind of project. And so this is what we want to do. So I really want to support the development of gene ther therapy in general. Um, would you say from a medical practitioner's perspective, in vivo, uh, they can they can understand it, they can manage it. Ex vivo is it's a process, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a business. We can problem. manage both. I mean, yeah. uh, so there are, you know, there are many clinical trials with in vivo gene therapy uh, and many examples, um, but ex vivo too. Um, for example, so for cystinosis, we, we developed that here and, you know, um, you know, all the physicians got on board and, you know, they are doing a great job. But there are many other uh, examples, as I said, metachromatic leukodystrophy, adrenal leukodystrophy, sickle cell disease, beta thalassemia. I mean, there are many of them. Yes, it's a process. Yes, we have to put in place. But um, at, the, at the end of the day, it's, it seems to be a very safe um, uh, approach. And so I truly believe that there are so much to learn about that and the power of it, that it will become much more uh, applicable and, and used in medicine. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, good luck with everything that you're doing. I think it is very important work. And if we can go in and modify cells and, and genes, uh, we can cure a lot of diseases, I think. So. This is, it's uh, not this is all, but we can <laughs> try to do a, a lot of them. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, thanks for spending time with me, Stephanie. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you.